If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. This podcast is part of the Podcast Arcade Network. Hello, I am Randy Andrews, and today I've got Jerry McMullen from the Worst Comic Podcast Ever with me as we discuss the movie Flash Gordon from 1980. Today marks the 25th episode of Soundtrack Alley, and to celebrate, Jerry and I will talk about the background, the comic, the cast, and of course, the great soundtrack today on Soundtrack Alley. Jerry, it's good to have you on Hello. the show again. Thank you, Randy. It's good to be back. Yeah, how have you been? I've been well. I've been busy. I've been, uh, since I was last on the show, I had a, a knee surgery. So I've been recuperating from that and going through rehab. And it's given me a chance to get caught up on podcasts such as yours, Podcast Alley, as well as my own, the worst comic podcast ever. So it's going good. All right. Today, it marks the 25th episode of Soundtrack Alley. Now, I remember getting into this podcast thing back in the day by calling in to the Two-Headed Nerd Comic Cast. Over the course of 25 episodes, I've interviewed four different composers for the show so far and can't wait to interview more. So, Jerry, let's get into some trivia for this film of Flash Gordon. General Gala, Flash Gordon approaching. What do you mean, Flash Gordon approaching? Okay. Well, first of all, I'm just going to date myself. I was, I'm old enough to remember seeing this in the theaters. So, uh, this it's it's a campy movie. It's it's not a great movie, but it's a fun movie. I love the color scheme. I love the jokes. I love the character designs. It's it, it's a fun movie. Yeah, it is. Um, it's really actually going to be enjoyable to be able to talk about it. Did you know that four 007 actors appeared in this movie? Um, well, obviously, Timothy Dalton, who played Bond for a couple of films, mm -hmm. uh, played the prince in the movie. Um, but I'm drawing a blank as to who else. Well, there's Max von Sydow, uh, okay. who played in Never Say Never Again, Topple from Fiddler on the Roof, and uh, he was something else in one of the Bond films, and then a young Robbie Coltrane. So I was really surprised at that fact. Okay. Did you know also that Max von Sydow's Ming costume, it weighed over 70 pounds and he could only stand in it for a few minutes at a time? You know, that's, uh, that's surprising, but it, it made sense. I mean, um, you know, most of his scenes in the movie, he's not, he's not having much movement. Mm -hmm. um, 
it he, it's him standing in place and cameras moving back and forth between him and other characters um it's surprising that it it did weigh that much but i mean it was a, it was an elaborate costume and they might not have been able to use use any of the modern sheets uh back then they might have just had to actually layer layer robe after robe on it to to fill it out yeah it's quite possible for them to have to have done that i found it interesting that all the main actors were signed for multiple films but the sequels were never made so well, oh go ahead well uh, what i had read along that lines i guess um you know the plan was to have sequels in line um as was becoming the the early trend at that point but the star of the movie sam jones apparently uh got into some kind of riff with uh de laurentis and left during post-production so a lot of his dialogue in the movie is overdubbed by another actor when they had to make changes because Sam Jones wasn't around and because he he wasn't coming back then the the plans for the sequel got scrapped. Oh yeah. Yeah. And the the first movie didn't go as great as they thought it would. Yeah, it covered its budget. It did really well in England uh which and it did well in Italy, you know, and you had actors uh you had a couple of actors from Italy, so there was uh, a local push for people to go out and see it there. But it, it's one of those, it's known as a cult classic for a reason. You know, by, by definition, cult classic, it probably means that a lot of people didn't see it to, to begin with. And it was only later in the, the video market with the VHS or even beta tapes. Um, and then that led into the DVDs and all that that's that's where it found its its market and whether film festivals showings on college campuses um cable tv i mean it it stayed in circulation for years mhm yeah and when when you think of the multiple different things that was dealing deal dealt with this film um, we look at the actor of Sam Jones and that his hair wasn't really blonde. <laughs> yeah. Like the actor, he had actually really dark hair and he had his hair bleached for the role. And then Melody Anderson, who played Dale, her hair was actually blonde and was dyed brown. And so uh, even Flash's, or Flash was supposed to have blue eyes but Sam Jones couldn't wear the contacts, so he didn't have blue eyes. Okay. Yeah, and and Sam Jones, he was cast in the role uh, by the mother-in-law of Dinah D. Laurentis on an episode of The Dating Game. Isn't that interesting? You know, a lot of people made their start on The Dating Game and other uh, game shows from that era. Um, you know, every now and then I'll, you know, end up on the game show network and you'll see one of those shows from the seventies or early eighties and you'll recognize a person on like one time I saw a very young David Letterman appear on a, on a password. Oh, wow. It's like he had just moved out to California, was trying to get started as a comedian and He's on this game show, and it's like, wow, kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. Like, I just found it unique, uh, some of the different things that happened with Sam Jones in a way. I'm going in after him! According to him, while filming the tilting disc fight scene, uh, yes. the, the actors would get covered in paint by the disc that was spray-painted silver, and then they would... <laughs> have to take an ex take extra time between each take to wipe off the silver paint that would get on their bodies. Yeah, I that was one scene that I paid particular attention to when I was rewatching it this week. Um it wasn't 
the most highbrow of films and a lot of it it was playing for the camp but uh just watching it i mean you can see where there's a lot of cuts where they've stopped and started resume the scene um you know because not only with that paint but sometimes the cuts that they were incurring from the whips and from the spikes would magically disappear three seconds yeah. later yeah. uh and then that then they would reappear later and they'd be bleeding and it, it was just that that adds to the charm and to me it just all right have fun with it don't take it so serious just watch it and enjoy it oh yeah yeah definitely now another actor that i really appreciated was in this film that you couldn't really tell that it was him in the film was max von Sydow. i like to play with things a while before annihilation <laughs> Max von Sydow, I mean, he had so many small bit roles in some science fiction films back in the day. Like, mm -hmm. uh, I have to mention this one. He was in Dune of 1984 yeah. as Dr. Liet Kynes. And then uh, most recently, he was in Star Wars The Force Awakens uh, yep. as Lor Santeca. That's a really odd name. <laughs> um, the Flash Gordon serials of the 1930s, which the film is a remake of, and the science fiction novel Dune were considered to be George Lucas's influence behind the Star Wars films. So I thought yeah. that was kind of cool. Well, and before he made Star Wars, uh, Lucas was actually trying to get the rights to Flash Gordon, because that's the movie that he wanted to make. Mm -hmm. uh, and De Laurentiis, who had had the rights for years, uh, wouldn't release them to Lucas. And so that's why he moved on to do Star Wars. Uh, but, you know, it, Star Wars has clearly been influenced by uh, all kinds of serials from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, um, whether it's the sci-fi ones like flash gordon or buck rogers whether it's the westerns um you know there's there's so many elements that he drew from um in making star wars that it it really was a tribute back to the films of his youth including the original uh flash gordon serials oh yeah yeah and i mean just some of the things that i mean with all the makeup that Max von Sydow was wearing I didn't even realize at first that it was actually him as Ming the Merciless mm -hmm. so uh, I found it interesting that one of the the points of Ming's grand plan was that the moon would uh, approach the earth and collide with it and near the end Flash he watched down watched the countdown clock measuring the time before the collision and he manages to save the day just seconds before impact. Yes. And, and what I found interesting was that in reality, the moon would, would stop its approach within a small distance to Earth, perhaps mere miles or thousands of feet. And so the proximity of the Earth to the, or the moon to the Earth would result in such devastation due to the mutual gravitational fields of the two large bodies overlapping that in all likelihood all life on earth would s still be destroyed so sure <laughs> so talking a little science there it's like yeah but you know you have to throw reality out the door and just have a blast with it yeah so. and that was the whole nature of the serials uh that that inspired it. I mean, there was, it was more about the story and not so much about the science. So um, more emphasis on the fiction. Yeah, exactly. Um, according to like the original storyline, uh, when Dale was entranced by Ming's hypnotic ring, she is having a vision of being in an erotic picnic with Ming in a 1920s setting. <laughs> Isn't that goofy? You know, it, there were times when I I almost blushed on the rewatch just hearing the different um, 
some of the some of the jokes, some of the innuendos that were made. Uh, well, I just mentioned that the scene where uh, Flash was mentally communicating with Dale and had the princess on his lap. Uh, yeah, you know that makes a really clear point to me because that was a really <laughs> that was a really strong innuendo scene. I was like, wow, they're putting this in this movie early on and yeah. they're making no exceptions really it was kind of yeah. some of the things i'd like to talk about is the actual music this was the first movie that the rock band queen made music for in it uh prince voltan says who wants to live forever and the only other movie that queen did the soundtrack for was highlander and the movie they wrote the songs included who wants to live forever on there as well. So I thought that was yeah. cool. Who wants to live forever? <laughs> yeah, Queen Queen was very popular at that time and uh it was it was a pretty bold move to have them do the majority of the soundtrack. You know, generally if if a band was to do something like that it was more related to their own project. And I'm thinking of like the who with Tommy. Um, but to have, to have Queen do this soundtrack, I mean, that was a huge departure. And I think, I think they were trying to bring in fans because, you know, the soundtrack did well. And it's that, that main theme is so memorable. I mean, just even thinking about it now, I can just kind of hear the drum beat and building, building and, flash yeah and i mean it is so memorable and i mean you know you stop anyone on the street and you mention the word flash gordon they're going to start hearing that song and they're going to be going bum 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 flash so yeah uh it's you know it's kind of ingrained in even pop pop culture now um yeah so i mean i just found it unique that they have only done two scores and I can think of a few other artists that actually did not just the singing album, but also the instrumental. And it was Toto was the only other mm -hmm. one that I could think of. I found it interesting that one of the things about the film was that Kurt Russell, he had auditioned to play Flash Gordon. And according to an interview, uh, with Russell in Starlog Man magazine uh, from 1981, Dino De Laurentiis really wanted Russell for the part, but he turned down the role because he thought the character was lacking personality. Yeah, uh, as I as I've read, also Arnold Schwarzenegger was considered for the role, but his Austrian accent was still too strong at that point that they felt that it would take away from the movie. Yeah, and I mean, they were able to use him in another movie with Red Sonja, and that was a few years later. I think that was 83, and um, he didn't talk much in the in the movie because of uh, not being able to understand him very well, so that was kind of interesting. Oh, the actors that played the Hawkmen couldn't sit down because their costumes would hurt their backs. <laughs> yeah, and and I've got to give a, a shout out to one of your uh, fellow podcasters in the in the podcast arcade because uh, I know Eddie Fossler is a big fan of this movie. This is like one of his favorite movies, and I feel I almost feel like I've stolen this movie from him. <laughs> but, but doesn't he look like the the leader of the Hawkmen? He does. He looks. That like is the that leader. is what he needs to cosplay as at Okamakon yeah. is as one of the Hawkmen. As one of the Hawkmen. I ought to put that up as a picture and yeah. say, hey, Eddie, it's you. <laughs> yeah. Um, because that's that's so true. He does. He really does look like him. So and he's got the personality. Fun. I mean his his personality is the same energy level. I mean he would he would kill that costume. Oh yeah. So. Yeah he would he would do a great job with doing that costume. I thought that was pretty cool. I thought it was unique. Brian Blessed, he improvised a scene where Voltan gooses Dale 
and Melody Anderson's reaction was just genuine. And it's like, how could it not be? <laughs> yeah. So um, one thing that I want to get into is the comic. Now, did you ever read any of the older Flash Gordon comics? Well, now, uh, originally, Alex Raymond, who was the creator of Flash Gordon, this started out as a comic strip in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. And it was done to compete with the popular Buck Rogers comic strip. Um, so both of them have been newspaper comic strip properties for years and years. And they've had movie serials and they've had uh, comics uh, adapted of them over the years. Um, the comics come and go. I mean, we, we were talking about this earlier in the week in our initial meeting and um, you know, the Flash Gordon comics will, will run for a while and then they'll drop off and the rights will transfer to a different publisher and they'll start up a new series and it'll run for a while and then fade off and another year or two later, a new, someone else wants to try Flash Gordon. It, it's it's going to be challenging. I think as we get further and further along um, and get further away from the 1930s, it's harder to sustain the interest in Flash Gordon as a strict story like a comic format just because the sci-fi has gone up to such heights since then i mean yeah uh you know we we as we're recording this um the trailer for episode eight for star wars dropped today and oh yeah that was an I mean, amazing trailer yeah i was so excited and, and you know it's not to say that Flash Gordon can't be told in that a good Flash Gordon can't be made in today's time, but the basic premise of Flash Gordon is is kind of dated that it's hard to tell a good story using today's standards, but still based upon those original story points. I think you would really have to change up Flash Gordon and almost reinvent it for it to be successful. Yeah. And when thinking about that very thing, you know, what I was thinking of, how you're talking about that it was dated and that it's very hard to uh, translate that to a modern audience. It gave me a, a point of view, uh, a nice segue into one of my, my in, info points that I found. Um, according to Brian Blessed, it took about three days to prepare the Ajax sequence and put everything, including dozens of hanging Hawkmen, in place. And Blessed put in his own special effects, going pew, 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 as he shot his cardboard bazooka. <laughs> and because of this, they had to take another whole day to reset. And Blessed didn't feel too bad, as Sam Jones was also a pretty hot hand with his prop gun also filling in the pew yeah. pews. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it, it shows its dated time and that, you know, they, they had several iterations of Flash Gordon that was supposed to be happening. Like um, Lowell, Lou uh, Schemer, uh, I think I'm saying that right. Uh, he had an animated NBC movie of Flash Gordon, The Greatest Adventure of All which happened mm -hmm. in 1982 and turned to Dino De Laurentiis who agreed to help out if uh, Schemer could finagle the rights for him to make a theatrical film. And so uh, De Laurentiis was impressed with Schemer's results and the prospect of cashing in on the theatrical version and NBC shelved the animated movie for a handful of years. And so it remained like recut and turned into a Saturday morning uh, series back in 1979. Okay. So it was kind of interesting how that, like how you look forward and then how, how they looked back because the resulting scripts were there, but uh, it couldn't have been turned into an animated film. And so 
it's just really interesting. Uh, earlier, you were talking about language barriers, like having Italian crews, because there was quite a language barrier due to the English and Italian crews on the mm -hmm. set. So that was kind of interesting. Um, oh, here's an idea that actually happened with uh, the thoughts on the music is before Queen was actually donated took the time to actually record the music. Um, there was uh, Mike Hodges. He had considered commissioning Pink Floyd to do the music. Now that, now, that would have been interesting. Yeah, that would have certainly changed the dynamic of the film, don't you think? Yeah, I'm glad it went to Queen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just, I, I mean, it is... They had the right energy and attitude for that type of of movie, you know, that they were going for. I don't, I mean, it's, I, I like both bands and I think, I just think the Pink Floyd take on it might have been a little, almost on the downside. I mean, just, I don't, I don't know if it would have had as much energy and if it would have been as instantly memorable as the Queen performance. Oh, I agree totally. And, you know, it just changes the dynamic of what that film would have been uh, mm -hmm. had Pink Floyd actually done it. So another um, point I'd like to bring out is like, there was a scene that wasn't really necessary to the film. There was a scene where Dale turns into a giant spider for a dream sequence, and Melody Anderson spent six hours getting painted green, wearing fake eyes and fangs with a headpiece that weighed, weighed over 20 pounds. When Mike Hodges came in, he said, this is wonderful, but we can't use this. It has absolutely nothing to do with the script. And it makes sense, because yeah. it took a lot of time to put her in that makeup and and yet you know it's like it was kind of a pointless scene but there's another aspect of the whole idea of flash gordon that it was a fun movie they wanted it to seem like a lot of fun to be getting into yeah well and you know a lot of that goes back um to the screenplay written by lorenzo simple jr who um his background uh, he helped develop the 1960s Batman show and wrote oh, a lot yeah. of those episodes. And so the, the screenplay had been bouncing around for a while and De Laurentiis asked Simple to take try it. And Simple threw something together. And I think he was actively expecting someone to come in and clean it up and tighten it up. And De Laurentiis kind of looked at it and it's like, all right, we'll use this. And so it never really had a true review by an editor to make it a better script. They just went with the, basically the initial draft and started running with it. And so, you know, I, I, on the DVD that I was watching it, the extras had an interview with Semple and he, he'll be the first to tell you, he didn't, he didn't put together a very good script. His, <laughs> his screenplay he, he fully admits it wasn't that great, but they they used it, they made it work, and you know it's up for history to judge at this point. So yeah, um, and yeah. another another thing about that is that um, when the script was translated into Italian, uh, Lorenzo described her as a horrible translator, <laughs> and it was just funny. There's an example that. You know, you have the words, the tall, beautiful woman walked into the room and she'd say, oh, what a beautiful cat. <laughs> <laughs> and Semple complained, but Dino De Laurenta said, I do not want to be fooled by the words. I do not want to be fooled by written words. I want to know the story. And uh, I thought that was just kind of a funny, funny point in it because it showed kind of the language barrier and that the Italian translator wasn't very good. Yeah. 
All right. Um, well, um, in addition to the Queen, um, there was other uh, orchestral sections throughout the movie done by uh, Howard Blake. Oh yeah, hasn't he done? Hasn't he done a lot of other scores? Um, I don't have anything in my notes on that uh, gentleman. On the notes that I have, I don't have much on that. Um, I haven't heard that name before. Okay. Um, it may have been, you know, for some 1970s movies that uh, I've never seen. Well, I'm bringing up a list of some of his work here. I think the the most famous films of his, Flash Gordon from 1980, uh, SOS Titanic from 1979, Amy Deville 3D in 1983. Hmm. Um, those seems to be the, the most popular ones or the ones yeah. that I initially recognized from the list here. Yeah. Um, I mean, the thing about the music is it's it's really iconic and queen really was able to capture a surreal uh feel to the film making it a real like science fiction fantasy film because you mm -hmm. don't only get uh the one planet where ming's castle is and mingo city is but you get the planet of the tree men and you get you know these other places in this yeah. far off world that um you know you would have never considered and one of the things i like about the whole color scheme even i have it in my notes the psychedelic color effects throughout the ming universe were accomplished by swirling multicolored dyes through creative lit tanks of water and so you know you get like this nebula uh, alternate dimension type feel to it and um, it made it very sci-fi slanted but also you get that fantasy feel uh, mm -hmm. when looking at the different elements of the universe and yeah the, the colors really stand out in this movie I mean it you know, it, in a lot of ways, it reminded me, if you uh, recall, the 1989 Dick Tracy movie that Warren Beatty did. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, where, the, you know, they really focused on the primary colors with all of the characters just to make them pop and make it look like a tr true comic strip come to life. And yeah. I think, you know, they that's what they were uh, intentionally doing here with Flash Gordon. Oh, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, you look at the old pulpy uh, comic strips of the 1930s and 40s, such as Dick Tracy or even Flash Gordon, and you look at the different characters that they had in it and how they're so, they pop, you know, the colors pop. Uh, even with the older comic strips, they had it in, you know, these these individual unique colors, they wouldn't always put them in black and white. And that those colors really showed through and made the viewer uh, really read them uh, thoroughly because mm -hmm. the colors were there. And um, some of the characters even like, well, with Flash Gordon in the original comic strips, there was a character known as Kayla that was the king of the shark men. And he was from an undersea kingdom of Mongo. And rather than the German accented female general of Ming's forces played in the movie, and um, Prince Thun was the king of the lion men in the strips. And then it was unlike the human character, George Harris, uh, who, who played in the movie. So I just found it unique that the different comic connections, that it was more of the newspaper, newspaper comic strips rather than like the comics that we get today. I mean, I have one Flash Gordon actual comic book and mm -hmm. I got it mainly just because of the cover because it had an excellent version of Ming the Merciless and uh, Dale, and then you get Flash Gordon on the cover, and it's just, you know, it's a really impressive cover, uh, but yeah. you, as we discussed earlier, you know, we can see why Flash Gordon just doesn't work too well in 
the modern society setting, they would almost have to revamp it and make it like a more modern Flash Gordon in a way to make it work. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not to say that it can't be done, but it would have to be done in the right hands. Um, you know, I, you know, we, we've seen these reimagining or retakes on a lot of classic properties over the last 15 years. I think back to what uh, Ron Moore did with Battlestar Galactica in the early 2000s. Uh, compared to the original 1978-79 version. Um, we've seen that in the, over the last 10 years with the Doctor Who franchise, um, when they uh, turned that around and, and brought it back for a, a current audience. Uh, you know, it can be done, but it, it's got to start with a solid writer, a solid uh, producer that gets gets. The, the basic concept, but knows how to tell that story in today's, uh, in today's world. Yeah, and sometimes it involves um, having the right vision for it. And sometimes you see some modern directors, they don't quite have the right vision for what the film needs to be. I mean, yeah. I can name one director right now that isn't in high repute uh, because of his dark settings for his films, if you know what I mean. Uh, I've got a couple ideas in mind. Yeah, yeah. You, you know who I mean. Uh, specifically along the DC lines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there's, there's certain movies that get this flair of great uh, vision and I think uh, later this year, we'll be getting the uh, Thor Ragnarok movie. And I've seen the trailer for Thor Ragnarok, and it kind of has this 1980s feel to it, but it still gives you like this modern take and makes it, you know, relevant to our time. Yeah. So I'm kind of excited about that. Uh, but there's, you know, there's so many things we could be talking about. There's a few cameos that actually appeared. Um, I talked about, uh, Robbie Coltrane, uh, that mm -hmm. he was on, uh, a James Bond film, but he also, uh, was a cameo as a man at an airfield scene, land handing Flash and Dale's luggage and then closing the plane door. And okay. then um, that was just one of the uh, cameos that appeared. And then also I thought it was interesting that Sam Jones actually choreographed and did most of his own stunts because he was pretty tall. And so they had a hard time finding someone else to actually uh, <laughs> go in and do some of his scenes because they couldn't, find someone six foot apparently <laughs> uh so um i found it unique richard o'brien he found the whole experience of making flash gordon to be a bit tedious but he got pleasure from uh, sitting in the personalized chairs i thought that was kind of funny yeah <laughs> you know these different people they have these ter different personalities when they go on the scenes of, of a movie. And I thought it was just fun because, you know, we look at different parts of the film and uh, how different elements of Flash Gordon, like the 1980 movie of Flash Gordon mirrors some things that happen in modern cinema. Um, you think about, well, like, let's look at the very end of the film. Um, you know, with the destruction of Ming or uh, Ming is dying or whatever, uh, yeah. you know, and then his evil laugh is there. Uh, it mirrored a scene in Doctor Who, Last of the Time Lords, back in 07, when there was an unidentified hand seen picking up the ring of the master at his funeral pyre, in which the master's laugh is heard, and then that mirrors what happened in Flash Gordon, 
how Ming sure. isn't really gone. So I thought that was unique. Yeah. Uh, so I've got a few cues for us today. I Good. thought it was pretty exciting to be able to play some music uh, from Queen. Um, it, it'll be nice to look at some of the instrumental work that was done on the score and um, not necessarily the singing songs. And so um, we can look at uh, our first set of cues include in the space capsule, which is the love theme, uh, Ming's theme in the court of Ming the Merciless, and then the football fight. So Jerry, what do you think of these three cues? Um, well, the 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 capsule i i don't really recall the music from that i just recall the, there's a scene in the capsule they're they're all unconscious the the ship is floating through space um and dale's head starts to tilt based upon the 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 turn of the ship but flash's head doesn't and so <laughs> her head tilts into to his shoulder and he kind of leans in closer to her and it's like all right that probably shouldn't be happening it should probably be happening to each of them the same way <laughs> but um but the one that really stands out of, of those that you listed was the football fight that's oh just, yeah th that's such a fun scene and the music just keeps it keeps it going um you know it it's almost like you <sighs> It, it was almost like that playing a video game and you've got it on the easiest level possible where you're, you're shooting the bad guys or whatever, the aliens, yeah. uh, it just, you know, he was throwing the, that green ball thing around and just knocking these aliens out left and right and using his, you know, football skills. Cause he <laughs> was the quarterback of the New York jets apparently yeah, uh, to knock it out. But then, he accidentally gets knocked out by one of them uh, being thrown to him. And it's like, you know, for all the hits that he was taking, you would think that that hit might have just kind of grazed him or something. But no, yeah. it knocked him out silly. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so now let's play those cues. All right.
the tributes from Ardentia. We, the people of Ardentia, we have suffered since you blasted our kingdom. I can offer you nothing this year except my loyalty. Prince Thun, we prize nothing more highly. And tell us, how great is this loyalty to your emperor? Without measure. We are delighted to hear it. Fall on your sword. Flash Gordon, quarterback, New York Jets. Dale Arden, your highness. Pathetic earthlings. Hurling your bodies out into the void. Come closer. Let us see you. So next, I've got Execution of Flash, The Kiss, and Aboria, Planet of the Treatment. Now, I really love how these cues really show us the true nature of like Ming the Merciless, and then how Flash Gordon escapes, and even winning the uh, admiration of other people throughout his adventures. Now, Jerry, what do you think of these cues? The tree people, is that where they had the, the tree stub and you had to put your hand into it? Yeah. And avoid getting, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, that, uh, they did a good job of building up the suspense, especially when uh, Flash and, and the Prince are taking their turns, uh, putting their hands in. And, um, you know, as a 10-year-old kid, that scene scared the, the heck out of me. It's like, like I wanted no business of that but uh you know watching it today or this past week i mean it does that music really amps it up uh just kind of building up the tension and uh it works perfect there oh yeah definitely so so um let's play those cues
I brought you a present. Flash. Welcome back from the grave. a fugitive from Mingus treason. Prince Baron, I'm not your enemy, Mingus. Let's all team up and fight him. Lower them into the swamp. So, we come to an, to an end of another episode of Soundtrack Alley, uh, being the 25th episode. I'm so excited that I've gotten to 25. Uh, yeah. it's, it's been really great. Uh, being able to look back on the background of Flash Gordon and see where I've actually come from uh, just starting out with my podcast and getting it going. And um, it's just, just been really a nice journey so far. And I've got several more ideas for my podcast. So I'm really looking forward to doing more. Um, when When you look back on the movie of Flash Gordon, uh, what have you thought of, of it and looking back at this 80s movie? Um, I think it it's really a product of its time. Um, you know, it, it had the pieces in place to be a successful film. I just think if they had paid a little more attention to the details, whether it's fine-tuning the screenplay or um, better job of editing, little things like that. It, it could have been a much more solid film, but it's still a very enjoyable film. You know, Sam Jones is always going to be remembered for this movie. Queen, for all of their, all of their different hits, within the first paragraph of any biography of them, they get mentioned as doing the soundtrack for Flash Gordon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even uh, Matt Svon Sido, for all of his numerous roles, Flash Gordon is one of the ones that stands out at the top for most people. Um, so it, it definitely has made its mark in pop culture. Um, you know, I would have loved it to have been a better movie, but I still enjoy it nonetheless. Oh yeah, definitely. And it's, you know, it's just uh, a colorful, ex- uh, exciting adventure for the eyes. There's so many different colors in the movie. There's, there's action, there's romance, there's comedy. Um, it's a great movie just to watch on its own and just, have fun with it and throw reality out the door, like I've said before earlier. So the last three cues that I've got for us is I have Volton's theme. I've got the marriage of Dale and Ming. And then finally, crash drive on Mingo City. Now this gives us the action cues that we really need for the film and help us to see the adventure side of Flash Gordon. And I love how Queen uses these different instruments to enhance the feeling of the film. Uh, Jerry, what do you think of these these cues? You know, the the last thirty minutes, the the movie is so frantically paced. I mean, it's nonstop action, and the music is is there in the background, and it's it's keeping things moving, um, despite you know, all the pew pew from the, from the laser guns and all of that. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it, it definitely does its, its job, but I don't, if you ask me to kind of try to hum it, I couldn't do that. I couldn't, I couldn't necessarily hum out those tunes, you know, that were playing in the background there, but you, you feel it there, you hear it there. Uh, you know, it's one of those, and I mentioned this when we talked about Star Wars back in uh, December or January, whenever that was, you know, when I watched Star Wars again, specifically to listen to the music, 
it amazed me that the music was there, you know, almost 75, 80% of that film had music mm -hmm. in the background. And it's yeah. one of those, unless you're consciously listening for it, you don't always pick up on it. Um, and it's, that's the case, you know, with Flash Gordon here. The music's there and the music does its job and it's great and all that, but you're, you're not, you're not always tuned in just to hear the music. You're tuned in to watch what's being presented on the screen. And the music is almost kind of like a, it's a little aid to kind of keep you from getting distracted by something else and keep you focused uh, both with your ears and your eyes on the screen. Yeah, I, I would totally agree. Um, so I'd like to thank you, Jerry, for being on Soundtrack Alley today. And for Absolutely. for the first milestone of my podcast, so Good. Um, it's been great to share this episode with you, and I'm looking forward to you know doing some more uh, podcasts in the coming months, full of excitement and even some great music that I've got planned. And uh, Jerry, where can people find you? Um, you can find the worst comic podcast ever. Uh, and we, we do say that ton in cheek. We know we're getting better. Uh, but, uh, you know, in addition to our website, worstcomicpodcastever.com, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, YouTube, um, and uh, probably a couple of other social sites. Uh, in person, we're actually going to be uh, – all, all three of us are going to be together for Planet Comic Con in Kansas City at the end of April. I don't know when this is going to go up, but uh, if you're there, we're going to be hosting a bunch of panels. Uh, we're even going to do a live recording of our 150th episode uh, there at Planet Comic Con. So um, we're, we're, we're still having fun with this. Um, it's a good chance for us to hang out and talk all the nerdy comic stuff that our wives don't want to listen to us rattle yeah. on about so we're doing good with it yeah and actually this episode will go up that very weekend of, all right um friday uh april 28th it will go up. all right well, so. then everyone can listen to soundtrack alley on your way to bartle hall in kansas city and then come see me and my uh my buddies john and colin uh and we'll uh, look forward to seeing everyone there. Yeah. And so you can follow me on my Facebook page. Uh, follow the podcast arcade on Facebook. Uh, find me on Twitter at Randall Andrews one. Uh, you can find the podcast on iTunes and Podbean or even your favorite podcast app. And I'd like to thank Jillian Orwall uh, for the great intro that she's composed for the show. I'm, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'm really excited about having her compose that intro for me. And uh, so it's just been a real special moment because this marks the 25th, anniversary, 25th episode and it helps to have a new theme now and again. So I'm really excited about that. Great. So um, without further ado, let's play these final tracks and happy listening. Repel board. 
merciless ruler of the universe, take this earthling, Dale Arden, to be your empress of the hour? Of the hour, yes. You promise to use her as you will? Certainly. Not to blast her into space? Until such time as you grow weary of her. I do. I do not! After me, Your Majesty, with this ring, I thee wed. Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. I hope you take some time to review me, my podcast on iTunes and also listen to it on Podbean. And if you leave a review or rating on there, it'll help us get noticed on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Also, if you want to leave a comment, question, or concern, please email me at soundtrackalley at gmail.com and enjoy looking at my blog at soundtrackalley.com.